Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, Rangers fans, and welcome to episode 47 of the new Ice City Podcast. I'm your host, Vincent Mercagliano of the USA Today Network, and we are back for another episode. We're approaching 50. That's kind of exciting. I have to be honest with you guys, I'm fighting a bit of a cold. Uh, You can probably hear it in my voice, but I'm trying to power through it because we're 10 games into the season, which is a little bit of a a milestone, I guess we can call it. This week on the show, we're going to have Shayna Goldman she writes for The Athletic. She writes for Sportsnet. I think McKean's, a few other places. Maybe you guys probably know her, especially if you're on Twitter. Very active when it comes to diving into the analytics. Does a lot of stuff regarding the Rangers. So I want to have Shane on this week to talk a little bit about some of the trends that we've seen from the Rangers now that we have a decent enough sample size to maybe draw some conclusions. So we're going to get into a lot of different stuff with her. Offense, defense, Igor, power play line combinations, all that kind of stuff. But we're going to start by talking about where we stand with the Rangers as of now. They've played three games since the last time we spoke. The record still looks very good. 6-2-2. Two, and two. I'm recording this on Wednesday. They don't play again until Friday. But the concerns remain similar from when we spoke last week and probably the week before. You look at these three games that they've played since the previous podcast and... That Friday night game at the Garden against Columbus, in my opinion, was the best game that they played all season. They had gotten shellacked 5-1 to one by the Calgary Flames on Monday. We spoke last week about that meeting that Coach Gerard Gallant called, a video session, where he really seemed to strongly try to get the message across to the players that they need to buy into this system They need to do more of the things that he's asking them to do when it comes to physicality and playing with grit and getting to the net and managing the puck, not turning the puck over, not getting too fancy, as he said, with their passing and going more straight ahead and creating more scoring chances that way. They really seem to heed that message if you looked at the way that they played against the Blue Jackets. That game was about as well-rounded as they've had. It was a shutout, another really good game for Igor. But on top of that, the Rangers' offense clicked. They got power play goals. They got even strength goals. Some of their best players really looked good in that game. Adam Fox, who we're going to talk about a lot in a few minutes, continues to be awesome. Artemi Panarin had a much better game that night. The Rangers had Ryan Strom. They had Capo Caco back from his injury, which at least on that night really seemed to give them a boost. So that game against Columbus was like, wow, if they can play like this all the time, they've got a chance to be pretty good. Then they go to Seattle on Sunday, and they come out of that with a win, but no question about it, Igor absolutely stole that win. Igor has stolen a couple wins, I think you could argue, so far. That game in Toronto definitely comes to mind, and then this game in Seattle, no doubt about it. If Igor wasn't as good as he was in that game, the Rangers 
probably would have had no chance if they were getting average goalie play. Seattle outshot them. I think it was 33-18 to in that game. The Rangers really did not have much going at all offensively. They made a few defensive mistakes, but Igor bailed them out for the most part, and they escaped Seattle with a win. So that kind of felt like a little bit of a step back from the standpoint of they had played this really complete game against Columbus, and then they go to Seattle, and they don't play nearly as well all around. But again, as they've done time and time again so far this season, they find a way to gut out that win. Maybe it caught up to them a little bit now, Tuesday in Vancouver, their most recent game. Their luck did seem to run out a bit in that game. I actually thought the Rangers played better against the Canucks. I think that the fact that they had six penalties, and let's be honest, some of those penalties were weak calls. So I don't think it was a a terribly undisciplined game from the Rangers. Six penalties is definitely too many, and they have to take some of the blame for that. But at the same time, if we're being honest, maybe only three or four of those penalties, at least in my opinion, I thought were deserving. But having six penalties forced them to play shorthanded quite a bit. They did really well in that aspect of the game. They went six for six on the PK. Their PK is absolutely on fire. I think it's 27 of their last 28 penalties they've killed, which gives them the best success rate in the NHL. In that span, I think it goes back to October 16th. So the the PK has been really good recently. Of course, a big part of that is Igor, but I do think there are a lot of things to like about the way that this PK has come together. They made a lot of improvements last year, and I think that has carried over into this season. And you add a guy like Barclay Goudreau, who's been very valuable for them on the PK. The Rangers are doing a good job in that area, but being on the PK so much took away from their chances to create offense, took away from their chances to have sustained offensive zone pressure at even strength. And when they were at even strength, they didn't do a great job of that. But it's hard to come to a big judgment just because of how much time they spent on the PK. And and not only how much time they spent on the PK, they also spent significant time on the power play. They had five of those in the game against the Canucks. They did get two goals out of it. The thing that kills you in that game is their final two power plays. They bled into each other a little bit. They had 30-something seconds of five on three. And they were in position to score on that power play realistically like five times. Artemi Panarin, I think, had a span of maybe less than 30 seconds where he had four shots. One of them, he he mishit. He whiffed it a little bit. The other three, Thatcher Demko, the goalie for the Canucks, was incredible, absolutely incredible. He lost his glove, and yet this guy was still making saves. One of the saves that he made on Panarin, he was lying on his stomach. If you guys haven't seen the the close-up replay of this, you got to go check it out. He's lying on his stomach and threw his leg in the air and blocked the shot with his skate. That was how close the Rangers came to winning that game in regulation. They end up losing in overtime and a little bit of a maybe a humbling loss because, as I mentioned, they had, got, they had played all these games where – at least as far as the skaters were concerned, they didn't play well enough to win and they still ended up coming out of there with a W because of Igor. So maybe they were kind of due for one of these games where they had an opportunity to win and they didn't end up winning. The key other part of that game, we just talked about the end of it where they could have won it. The place where they lost it was the beginning of the third period. The Truba Miller pair did not have a great night, although I do think that they've had a solid season. I've written about it and we're going to talk about it with Shayna in a few minutes, but 
they had a couple lapses, and, and the forwards were to blame on, a, uh, on those plays as well. It was just a pretty much complete defensive breakdown. The first goal in particular from JT Miller totally gets behind Keandre Miller. He was out of position, didn't see him. I don't know exactly what was going on in that play, but ends up right on the doorstep. Easy goal for Miller to make it 2-1. And then a few minutes later, the Canucks go, go ahead and tie the game at 2-2, and that changed all the momentum. So the Rangers made a few costly mistakes in that in that game, and, and it ends up coming back to bite them. We've seen them make costly mistakes when it comes to either turnovers or defensive laps repeatedly so far this season, and they've been able to oftentimes still get by. Last night, a couple mistakes came back to bite them, even though, again, I thought that they played better on Tuesday night against the Canucks than they did on Sunday night against the Kraken. But that's where we stand right now with the Rangers Still have, again, a very good record, but a lot of stuff to clean up. Still getting great play from the goalie, no doubt about it. That that has been the story of the season so far. And on that note, I'd like to let you guys know to please check loha.com slash sports slash rangers on Thursday for a story that I've been working on this week, which is really focused on Igor, the nuances of how he's gotten better this season, the improvements that he's made since he arrived in the NHL, the mental makeup of the guy. And in order to write that story, I reached out to a couple former Rangers goalies whose opinions I really trust, one of them being Steve Valiquette, friend of the pod. You guys have heard him on here before. He does a tremendous job as an analyst for MSG and runs the ClearSight Analytics Company, so he's really immersed in the numbers side of it as well as being a former goalie who can talk technique and all that stuff. So Steve was super valuable for this story. And I reached out to 1994 champion Mike Richter to get his impressions of Igor. He had a lot of glowing things to say about him. So that story diving into what makes Igor so good will be coming out on Thursday. Then on Friday, the Rangers will begin back-to-backs. They have Edmonton on Friday, followed by Calgary on Saturday. A reminder for you guys, I talked about this last week. I am not with the team right now. I am not on this trip. I'm leaving, actually, Friday morning for Florida, good friend of mine's wedding over the weekend, so I'm going to be off for a couple days. I will not be covering those games, FYI. We will still have stories posted, and I've got a couple things, including this Igor story, scheduled to go up in the next few days, so there will be a few things to get you through the end of the week, but it's going to be pretty quiet for me as far as the weekend goes, so a little reminder on that. There's no word yet on whether Ryan Reeves will play in those games, but based on what I've been hearing, sounds like his recovery from this lower body injury is not exactly where the Rangers want it to be quite yet. So I would not be surprised if they let him rest through the weekend. I'd have a hard time seeing him coming off of an injury like that, playing back-to-backs. Maybe they sneak him into one of those games. We'll see, but no concrete update to give you guys on Reeves at this moment. What I'm really interested to see is what they'll do with the goalies and whether we'll see any lineup tweaks. There's no doubt about it that Igor is going to play one of those games and Georgiev is going to play the other. Igor has played 8 out of 10 games so far. His workload has been heavier than we anticipated even when we talked at the beginning of the season. And I told you guys that I think the the Rangers were going to aim to give him 70% of the starts. He's at 80% right now. So I do think there will come a point where they want to ease up just a little bit and they're definitely not going to play him back-to-back. For me, personally, I think it makes more sense to play him against Edmonton. That is the more potent offensive team. Calgary, listen, they're playing lights out. They're playing really good hockey right now. We saw them hand it to the Rangers when they were in New York. Igor started that game, I think because he already lost to the Flames once. 
I would give Georgiev a crack at, at the Flames on Saturday in Calgary. And I think I would want Igor, who's clearly been their better goalie, their number one guy so far this season. I think I would want him against Connor McDavid and crew when you're in Edmonton against that high-flying attack. But could go either way. We'll see what Gerard Gallant ends up doing. I also think that because the last couple games, the Rangers, particularly at even strength, have struggled to generate offense. Again, this has been a theme all season, but I thought they got better in that game against Columbus and then sort of took a step back in the last two games against Seattle and Vancouver. I'm interested to see if there's a little bit of a lineup tweak. I don't know exactly what that might be. We talked last week about how I like the idea of that third line with Lafreniere, Blay, and Heedle. And I do think it's a little too early to hit the panic button on that line, but I don't think they've been great since they've been reunited. They looked really good the first time they played together in Nashville. Hasn't been quite as good since then. And the top six, quite frankly, has not been productive enough. Artemi Panarin still has significant points. Mika has had some points. It's not like these guys are being completely shut out. But they're not playing at that level. They don't feel as dynamic as they have when they're at the top of their games in the past. And that's another thing we're going to address with Shana in a few minutes. But that is, of all these things we're talking about, perhaps the biggest key of them all, is the Rangers need to get their top forwards going. They need Panarin and Zibanejad to get on track and and start ripping it up the way that we know that they're capable of. Of course, it would be great to see Lafreniere and Kako and some of those secondary forwards get it going as well. Right now, their main source of offense has been Adam Fox, and that actually leads us right into the final thing that I wanted to talk about before we get to Shayna, and that is the extension. The biggest news of the week, I probably should have gotten to this earlier instead of being 13 minutes into the show, but here we are. Adam Fox agreed to this seven-year, $66.5 million extension with the Rangers, comes in for an average annual value of $9.5 million per season. I had, it's funny, actually, if I'm being honest with you guys, I was working on a story about this that we had planned to come out on Friday. I've been doing a lot of features this week since I'm not with the team, wrote about uh, the Rangers skills coach, Mark Chiaco, who is a really interesting guy. I would encourage you guys to read that one as well. Writing about Igor, wrote about a bunch of the prospects. I've been making some calls and working on a lot of things. And I planned on finishing the week by coming out with a story about what this new Adam Fox contract might look like. And that story was going to come out on Friday. I waited a little too long because the news broke before I was able to get to it. But I had indications and rumblings that this was something the Rangers were talking about. When they finished off Mika's contract extension, they shifted their attention to Fox. Fox wasn't as much of an urgent need because unlike Mika, he wasn't going to be a restricted free agent, uh, unrestricted free agent this offseason. He was going to be a restricted free agent, so he would still be under team control. But from Chris Drury's perspective, the earlier he could get that one done, the better. And it really sounds like in the last few days before the contract was signed, things fell into place. The negotiations had been sort of dragging out and slow moving for a while. And then all of a sudden things came together rather quickly, which is usually what happens in these kind of situations. I was able to to pretty quickly get the information about exactly what the salary would be. Not to pat myself on the back too much, but the real ones, no. (laughs) So as far as the numbers go, the $9.5 million per year, I don't think there's any way to argue with that whatsoever. 
I know some people, and I've written this before, were hopeful that the Rangers would get him to stick at $9 million flat, which is what the Colorado Avalanche were able to sign Kale McCarr for. And McCarr and Fox, to me, are arguably the top two defensemen in the league right now when they're at the top of their game and when they're both healthy. We know McCarr has had some injury hiccups here and there, but those guys are always going to be compared to, together. They came in the league the same the same year. They were both Calder candidates as rookies. McCarr obviously won that. But then Fox got a leg up on him last year by winning the Norris Trophy. So in an ideal world, could the Rangers have maybe squeezed Fox down to nine? That would have been nice for sure. But 9.5 for a guy who just won the Norris, I think is a very, very fair price. And it's much better than what it could have been. I, I think that had Fox waited longer and had the type of season that it looks like he is on pace to have, it would have been very, very easy for him to come out and demand $10 million plus. You look at the highest paid defenseman in the league, Eric Carlson from the Sharks, he's making $11.5 million. Fox could have drawn a hard line and tried to aim for $10, 11000000 million. He didn't do that. We know how much he loves being here. We know he grew up a Rangers fan. Everybody knows the story. Clearly, he wanted to be here. Clearly, the Rangers want him to be here. He's been their best skater, bar none, this season, and you could probably say he was that for them as well last season. So getting this guy who I think there is a serious case to be made, if you look at last season and so far what we've seen this season, has been the best. I mean the number one defenseman in all of the NHL. That's what winning the Norris Trophy means. It means you're the best in the league. Getting him for this price for seven years is, I won't call it a bargain, but I think it's a very, very fair deal. And think about this. Fox is 23 now, playing out the final year of his entry-level contract. The extension kicks in next year. The extension for seven years will take him up to the point when he's 31 years old. That's not, you know, you t- we talked about Mika and we talked about some other contracts, Kreider that the Rangers have signed, and, you know, those guys, those contracts will go into their mid-30s. This is not taking Fox into his mid-30s. This is taking him to 31 years old. So what you're doing is you are locking up what is right now in this moment the best defenseman in the NHL for the full length of his prime without yet having to commit to paying for the back end of his career, his 30s, when at that point you would assume some skills will be diminishing. So to me, to get this guy for all of his 20s, and know that you have him locked up for his prime without any chance of that price tag raising, which, again, had he played out this season and continued to look as good as he'd look, that price tag would have only went up. I think it was a no-brainer. I think it was an absolute big win move for the Rangers. Probably of all the moves that Chris Drury has made since he became team president, this was the biggest no-brainer. This was the most obvious thing to do. So the Fox deal... That Actually, Rangers fans seem unified on this one. I have seen very few complaints about this deal. Pretty much everybody seems to be happy about it, and that's a good thing. We have some harmony as far as Rangers fans and Rangers Twitter and all that. All right, with that, I'm going to kick it over to Shayna, and then I'll be back following that interview to answer some of your Twitter questions. And now let's welcome into the show a guest who is going to help us hopefully understand some numbers. That would be Shayna Goldman. She's from The Athletic, Sportsnet. What else am I missing, Shayna? Um, Keen's Hockey. 
Keen's Hockey. All right. So she's all over the place. You can find her work. She's also very active on Twitter. There's a lot of cool stuff, cool graphics, cool little clips from games. So I would definitely encourage giving Shayna a follow. And she specializes in sort of breaking down analytics. So we are at the point now with the Rangers where we're 10 games into the season, which is a small sample size, but it, it is it's still a sample size. It's one eighth of the year approximately. So I wanted to dive in with Shayna and, and look at what we've seen from the Rangers so far. And I think the place I want to start is offense. This team, clearly, we've talked about this a bunch, is not generating a lot of offense. You look at their actual goals per game, it's 2.4, which is 26th in the league. Their expected goals for, from the numbers I was looking at at Evolving Hockey, it's even worse. It's 2.08. That's 29th in the league. So, Shana, tell me what you have learned or, or what your feelings are as far as the issues with this team when it comes to generating offense at even strength. We'll get to the power play, but let's start at even strength. So, yeah, like you mentioned, um, their their actual scoring rate is so low. And, you know, some of it is just having like a low shooting percentage. And you can see the team's on a shooting percentage is, you know, under 7%. And that puts them, I think, around like 25th in the league, 24th. But across the board, they're pretty much bottom 10 in every single offensive category. And a big issue with it is, you know, they're, they're just not generating enough. Um, ideally most, many people use the home plate area in front of the net as like scoring chances. And that's something they're just like not generating. Um, there's a little bit of offense from each circle. There's some right in front of the net, which we know is coming primarily from Chris Kreider and Alexi Lafreniere is getting there too. But you know, the slot area, they're not creating that much from, either and they just don't have this like sustained offensive pressure and that's what you can see with their expected goal rate so what expected goals do is um it is it assigns a value to every unblocked shot attempt and it's based on things like shot type angle distance whether it was a rush or rebound second chance so it's nice to see you know what the team's doing in terms of shot quality because we can look at just shot quantity all day and go well they were held off to the middle but the issue with the Rangers is they're not creating much in terms of volume and then they're not getting to the quality areas. So, you know, obviously the results do make sense based on all that. And, and that's been a point of emphasis from Gerard Gallant. He keeps talking about wanting this team to get to the dirty areas. And if you look at the goals that they have scored, that's largely how they've done it. You mentioned Kreider. He leads the team in goals right now. I think pretty much every goal except for that wrist shot down the right wing a couple games ago has been a net front type of goal. But, it, you know, a lot of these other guys, the coach is really pressing them to do more of that stuff. And it, for whatever reason, the Rangers have been reluctant. I know another issue is that Gallant has touched on quite a bit is the turnovers. And he feel like he feels like that is something that has prevented them from having a lot of sustained ozone pressure. So anything along those lines that you feel like are, are glaring issues right now? Yeah, um, I think anytime a coach comes in, you know, a lot of the times the focus to start is even strength play. And with Gallant's system, like there is a risk for turnovers if you're trying to get the puck through the neutral zone very quickly. Um, that does take time, but it also takes better execution than what they've had. But what's interesting is it too, is how much they're taking away the puck. You know, you see a player like Artemi Panarin, he's taking the puck away at the highest rate of his career, but he's not turning it into that much. And, you know, that line is still struggling defensively. So as much as they are, you know, trying to create, they're giving way more back, which is very unlike them. And if that line's not creating you know, a lot of offensive pressure. And yes, there were different, you know, players on that line at points and they have a smaller sample size than anyone else because, you know, Strom was out for as much as he was and same with Kako. But if that line's not going, that already puts you at a disadvantage too, even if it means the next line's coming on in the defensive zone, you know, versus getting a good chance because that line was just cycling the puck the entire shift. 
I thought that line with Panarin, Strom, and Kako looked really good in Kako's first game back. But now the last couple of games, they've struggled a bit. Are you when you look at the numbers? Are you seeing anything as far as line combinations where something looks to be working to you, or something looks like it's not working, and they need to reconsider what they're doing? Yeah. So the Kako line, like you mentioned, you know they were great when he first returned, and they were great, you know, the first couple games too. Um, but that line, I think they're about 42% of the expected goal share there on the ice for. So you can see that they're giving up way more and it's super uncharacteristic for Panarin to be a negative defensively. But right now, like that entire trio is, um, as for what's working, Kreider and Zibanejad have worked together so far this year, no matter who's been on their line, um, with Lafreniere, they were driving play a lot. I think that they have some of the best underlying numbers, but they did have a low shooting percentage. So they were doing the right things without the results. Uh, with Barkley Goudreau, it's working too. And it, what's nice is you do have the option to flip uh, Kreider and Goudreau to the left or right, depending on the shift. And like, obviously the last game we saw Kreider streak up the right side and score while he's been playing on the right much of the season, you know, before they were put together. And um, the Heedle line, the Heedle Lafreniere Blay line is working pretty well together. Uh, they're just getting out shot, but they are getting to the quality areas more. So while they're not breaking even in shot share, they are in expected goals. Um, their defensive numbers could use a little bit of work, but they do have one of the higher rates of expected goals for, um, of the line combination so far, because when they do shoot, they're getting to those quality areas. And a lot of it is Lafreniere. He is like the best individual expected goals of the team. So that means he might not be shooting the most that's Kreider. Um, but he is getting to the quality areas pretty consistently and it doesn't account for, uh, shooting talent and things like that, but it does show that he's doing everything right below the surface. So between the three of them, you know, they're really driving to the net more than other lines. So you like that line together. I actually wrote last week that I liked the idea of putting them back together because they had a really good game in Nashville. And then I just feel like having Lafreniere on the third line spreads the scoring out a little more. When you have Gaudreau and Blay on the third line, you're not expecting a lot of offense out of that combination. And it kind of I feel like it's not the best position for Hedl to succeed either. But these last two games are making me reconsider a little bit because I just feel like any line really has had none of them have had any success generating offense at five on five. Yeah. And if any game you would anticipate that for, it would have been against Vancouver, who's one of the worst defensive teams in the league this year. And, you know, they were last year as well. It's not entirely surprising. And they were completely outplayed at five on five, especially in the second half of the game. Um, the Lafreniere line, I think I agree with you on the point. It spreads out scoring. And right now they need that when they're not getting it from their second lines, who don't want it, that it's one line or nothing, or even two lines or nothing to have that third line is great. And, you know, you can balance your ice times accordingly too. some coaches see a need to, you know, keep their first line at the, I think like you look at Nashville under Peter Laviolette, that first line was playing as much as their third line. You don't want that, but you can increase the third line from what they got in years past. And if that line's clicking, you know, we'd obviously see that, but yeah, that's the challenge right now is figuring out how to mix and mash. And, and if they had maybe one more skilled player, it would change things just a little bit more because you know, Barkley Goudreau's offensive ceiling is what it is, but it is working right now with Savannah Jen Kreider. So if that keeps going, you don't have to worry about it. Or maybe if he moved up to Panarin's line, because Panarin's shown he doesn't need a third offensive player, but he needs to be playing at his best, which he isn't right now. And, you know, once him and Strom start going, I think then they have that option for the third player. Maybe that means switching around, see where Kako fits better or anything like that. But yeah, that line Right now it works, but it's something they're going to have to watch closely because the answer might be moving Lafreniere back up 
just to get the top six going a little bit more than they have. And maybe the answer is putting them back with Kreider and Zibanejad, because at least we know that they were generating. They just weren't getting enough of the lucky get bounces. And maybe part of that was Kreider transitioning to, you know, to the right side, which was new for him. And now that he has a little more experience or maybe they recognize he's better on the left and can switch, you know, freely during shifts. So they have options right now, more than maybe we thought they did a couple of weeks ago. Thanks to that game in Nashville, showing that third line can work, but it's just not, they're not creating consistently enough. And that's the biggest problem. I'm curious at a certain point to maybe see them swap Kako and Goudreau, try Kako on the top line with Mika and Kreider, and then put Goudreau on that line with Panarin and Strom. I probably put too much emphasis on this, but I always think to Jesper Fast and like that him on that right wing with Panarin and Strom was the best that Panarin and Strom have played together. That was Panarin's year that he was a Hart Trophy finalist and all that. So I think Goudreau being a similar type player, I, I like the idea of him there. And then Kako being up on that top line, I think, hopefully in theory would make them generate a little bit more offense, but I don't know if that, if that solves everything. I want to shift a little bit though, to defense goals against per game is much better. 2.2, which ranks fifth in the league, but you, you look at the expected goals against versus actual, the actual is 2.2. The expected is slightly higher 2.25. It's 14th in the league, according to evolving hockey. I guess we can probably sum that up in one word though. So the defense, I guess we can look at is solid, but what makes the actual goals against, even better is Igor. Yeah. So they're allowing a higher shot rate against, I think they're in the bottom 10 of that again. So, but they are limiting to the outside in some respects, like from the circles, they're not allowing as much and they're protecting the front of the net, but the slot is where they've let teams consistently shoot from Um, every game. You can look at a shot map and you'll just see there's like a straight line of shots. Right. And that's, you know, it's obviously not ideal to, to do that. And it's something they can work on. There is room for improvement and, you know, it's, it's a new defensive coach. It's a new head coach. So, you know, in some respects you can, you know, not be as concerned. It's only 10 games and just has been the difference maker. But if you see that as a trend that continues, that's where the red flags go up because, you know, you can't rely on your goaltender to be perfect every single game, even if he is absolutely outstanding. So, you know, the next two games are going to be pretty interesting because you have Edmonton who maybe is not the deepest team, but has some of the best offensive talent in the league and they're going to drive to those scoring areas. So if, you know, the Rangers can't move them away from there, they're going to be exposing Chesterkin to constantly be stopping McDavid on one line and Dreisaitl on the other since they have two top six lines clicking. And then Calgary, we already saw how that, you know, went down. That That's a team that has so much defensive structure and is taking advantage of the Rangers offensively too because they were giving up those quality areas. Um, but yeah, they, they're getting... They're getting by because of Igor Shostakin. He saved over seven goals more than expectations, you know, in all situations, which puts him third in the league behind, I believe it's Frederick Anderson in Carolina and surprisingly, uh, Sergei Borovsky in Florida. So I would expect to see him high up there, but ideally his workload is a little bit easier. So, you know, they don't have to worry so much about if he has an off night, which, you know, he rarely does, or if he's not perfect, that they're supporting their goaltender some more. I, I think speaking to that point, what, what Felix from watching the games, the defense has generally been pretty solid, but they have these lapses, whether it's a turnover that creates an odd man rush for the other team, or as we saw early in the third period last night, where they just kind of lose track of their man at the net front and they end up giving up easy scoring opportunities, which is what happened with the two goals against Vancouver in the third period. And ultimately that cost them the game. So, you know, the, those occasional mistakes, I think, with some of their youth and the new coaching staff and all that are are to be expected. And I do think that there has been some progress defensively. And I think 
the pairs being, especially the top two pairs being consistent, you know what you get in Fox and Lindgren and Miller and Truba had a couple of hiccups last night, but generally I think they've been pretty good. And I know there's from talking to both of them that they really enjoy working together. So I, I think th- there's some positive things there, but what you, you touched on how good Igor has been, and that's obviously been the difference. Save percentage right now is 943. And you, you mentioned it. If you look at goal saved uh, above average, goal saved above expectations, he's top three pretty much anywhere you look. Some people have him as I know I was talking to Steve Aliquette the other night, name drop. Um, and uh, he was <laughs> he, he was telling me that I think he has him ranked. Uh, his clear side analytics site has him ranked as like the best goalie in the league so far. So Igor, is there anything beyond just looking at the fact that he's the, the, the quality of the scoring opportunities, he's saving more than it looks like he should be allowing based on the numbers. Is there anything else that you would highlight as far as how good he's been? Yeah. So I'm, I'm working on a story for, I think Friday morning on this, but it's about how many games he's stealing and like his quality starts. And um, this was something when he first joined the Rangers, you could look at each goaltender and see each goalie was having, you know, a quality start for the most part. But then he started stealing games, which, you know, is reminiscent of what Henrik Lundqvist did for over a decade. So it's nice to see that he's filling these really big skates that Lundqvist left, but you don't want it that a goaltender has to steal every single game. And that's the biggest thing right there because his play is outdoing what the offense can do because his goal saved above expectations is often greater than the goal differential of every night. So it's something that they do need to clean up and it does come down to if they can't work on their defense more, which I expect they will, it's their offense. You know, they can get by with this defense with some tweaks and adjustments, because like you said, the top four are pretty much set. And, you know, Truva and Miller, I think are, that's a pair that does take a lot, you know, and a lot of people take issue with their play. They've been a lot better defensively this year, but when they make mistakes, they're so glaring. And of course we're all biased. That's going to stick out in our mind. Um, The third pair is the one that is like a little more cause for concern because a player like Patrick Nemeth is known for his defensive stability you know, throughout his career, his uh, even strength defense has been something that stood out. You know, a flaw of his game was maybe that he takes too many penalties when you want him to be your penalty killer. Um, but his even strength numbers against are a little bit concerning. And those are a little bit of a red flag. But then again, if it's only one pair you're worrying about versus all three, like that's progress for this team. You know, last year there were some weaknesses with two out of, you know, two out of three pairs, you know, pretty consistently. So as long as he can stay on top of his game in net, you know, and you can rotate Gergievin safely. And I think that they can, and they can be very selective about which games he plays. Um, They'll be fine in that respect, but it all comes back to the fact that their offense isn't matching their goaltending. So that's where they're going to fall short. And on Nemeth, I think there's, there's a lot on his plate right now. The Rangers are obviously still waiting for Nils Lundqvist to take off. He's been a healthy scratch the last two games. I do expect that we'll see him in at least one of these two games against Edmonton and Calgary coming up. I, I think that you got to have a little bit of patience with that pair because Lundqvist is a guy who's obviously still adjusting. We know the Rangers have high hopes for him. He's been their number one prospect for, you know, you could say at least a year. Some people would say two years now. So I, I think, again, especially when you talk about Miller and Truba, they've made some glaring mistakes as you touched on. But what strikes me all the time, especially with Miller, is like he'll make some mistakes where he's so good and mobile and has such a, a long reach that he'll kind of make up for that mistake in the moment. So he... I, to me, the talent is so obvious with him. Like I kind of give him the benefit of the doubt because I feel like as he keeps learning and keeps growing and getting better, he's going to be a real asset for this team. I want to shift now though, to, I know you've written about this quite a bit recently, the power play. And this is interesting because 
We just talked about the defense where, you know, their actual goals against is better than their expected goals against. The power play is different. Their power play success rate right now, and they did get two power play goals against Vancouver, which helped this. It's a, it's a little over 19%. That's 20th in the league. But if you look at their expected goals for per 60, it's actually pretty good. It's it's eight point it's uh, 8.17, ranked seventh in the league. So that that discrepancy, does that tell you that they're maybe creating more chances and they're cashing in on? Yeah. So they're definitely creating more shots and more quality chances than we give them credit for. But like, this is why it's so important. Every number you look at is to, you know, watch the video too. Um, and I think that is a misconception sometimes that maybe you're glancing at one and not the other, but you can watch that power play and see where they're going wrong and where they're going right. Tips and deflections are going to rate really high in expected goals for, and it makes sense. And it is one of the most dangerous shots that you can have. But if you have tips and deflections, you also want to have a one-timer. And that's something that they do have from one side. If you look at a heat map of that power play, you're going to see so much coming from the left circle. That's pretty expected in New York because it was Mika's manager there for a couple of seasons and then Artemi Panarin who increased his shooting when he came to New York. Um, this year, though, you're seeing it from the left circle and it's often been Panarin. Uh, I mean, it's often been Zibanejad instead of Panarin and Panarin's playing the right. So the issue with it is that right circle they're generating next to nothing for. And when Panarin was shooting from the right side, it's coming you know higher than the circle and it's outside that home plate area. So you're not getting as good of a quality look as you should want on the power play. So I think that they have more weapons than they're currently setting up for. You know, you want it that ideally you have a winger on their offside on each side. So you have two shooting options. And even if you're not going to have that, which they haven't in recent years because it's Ryan Strom on the right, as long as you have more than one scoring threat, which they did from Kreider in front, uh, Zibanejad in the slot, which he worked really well on, at, and then uh, Panarin from the left, plus you have Fox on the point, you know, it's not so much of a concern. But right now it just feels a little bit disjointed. Um, the encouraging thing is that they finally managed to get power play goals that weren't, you know, tips or deflections from Chris Crater. So that showed a little bit more dimension. But on the flip side, you look at it, it's against Vancouver. And that's where Demko has been incredible in net. But this is one of the weaker penalty kills in the league. So you have to take it with a grain of salt. You know, it works this night. Is it going to continue working? And how can they make it work? And the goals that they did score, it wasn't like Panarin was coming from the right side. It was off the faceoff and he was slanted a little bit more to the left. So shooting angle was better than it would have been you know, if you were on the reverse side of the ice. So there's a ton of room for improvement there. And some of it is just hoping that their shooting percentage, you know, goes up because what goes down generally goes up and, you know, they're 20th in the league in shooting percentage at just 12% on the power play. There's definitely room for improvement. And the numbers show that they should start rebounding a little bit more, but we know that systematically there's a couple tweaks that could come in that would put them in an even better position. So are you, we talk about this all the time, needing to add a lefty to that group. They did it with Lafreniere for a while while Strom was out. It didn't really work out very well for them. Part of me feels like Kako might be a better option, but do you think that the group as it is can work based on some of the things you're saying, or do you think that it is important to add that extra lefty? I think my first step would be working with the group that they have out there and just adjusting their positioning. I would put Panarin, who obviously is not at the top of his game, and maybe that's why they wouldn't want him in the best shooting uh, position, but I think if you move him to the position we know he has the most success in, he's at, you know, he's at a greater chance of having success. And uh, so I would flip him to the left. I would put Zibanejad back in the slot and see how it goes from there and how it works with Strom on the right, because, you know, he can pass really well and he can shoot the puck from there. Maybe tell him to shoot the puck a little bit more and a little bit quicker. Um, there's always going to be that flaw, though, that he's on his, you know, on the right shooting right. 
So he can't accept a one-timer as well. And you have Panarin right there in the perfect position to give you that Royal Road pass that increases your chances of scoring. But they make it work. So give that a chance first. And if it doesn't, I agree. I think Kako is the right fit, you know, to give a chance on that that uh, right side and see what he can do on the half ball and, you know, let him do his thing. He's super skilled. And even if he can just help them hold on to the puck a little bit more because we see them losing possession and then having to regroup and taking so much time off the clock, maybe could put them in a better position to succeed. And on Mika, he's a guy that when his shot is on, it's really on. It can be deadly. We've seen him get super hot for, for extended stretches of multiple times in his career. So far, it looks like his shot for whatever reasons is, is a little bit off. So I think the Rangers are hopeful that that will come. And, you know, we have to note that in the last three games, they've scored four power play goals. So I think this weekend will be big to see if they can carry some of that momentum and generate some offense on the power play against Edmonton in particular, who you're going to need to generate offense against. I think we all believe I'm curious to see how they play the goalies. I think for me, I would, I would start Igor against Edmonton and go with uh, Georgie against uh, Calgary because we've already seen Igor played against Calgary. didn't work out too well. And Edmonton, I think is just a more dangerous offensive team, although Calgary is red hot too. So uh, we know there's going to be one and the other. They're going to split those two starts. We'll see how they end up dividing it up. Last thing I'll ask you before I let you get out of here, Shana, individual just just looking at individual numbers are there guys that you feel like are exceeding expectations right now guys who you feel like are really lagging behind what, what when you look at individual performances for this team does anything jump out at you um well Panarin's someone that obviously is falling behind and the thing with it is he's still collecting points because he's an elite player so even if he's not playing at his best he's still a dangerous threat you know every time he's on the ice I do think he looks better the last few games um and maybe it's a matter of having Strom back uh, it's tough because I think him and Heedle, you know, it's, it's a pairing that I think a lot of us think would work. And it's too bad that they really didn't get to see Heedle, Panarin, and Kako together. But even still, you know, they have Strom back. So it's just getting that line to go. Um, and Strom, for the most part, does look fine in his minutes while he's been playing. Uh, Kako initially was exceeding expectations or playing where we thought he would be coming off of last year. And that's, you know, fallen off a little bit in the last few games. Uh, and... Chris Kreider, you know, that's a player who he's shooting the puck more than he ever has in his career, you know, the highest rate. And he's pretty consistent on the shot location. So that's positive. And Lafreniere, I think he looks more confident. You can see him getting to the quality areas more often. So that's great. And then um, on defense, we all know Adam Fox is, you know, unbelievable. And he's taking it to another level, which, you know, we expect growth. This is, you know, the prime of his career. He should keep going up. But the level that he's taken it to it's amazing how many highlights one player can have in one game. And um, I think I, I would say Truba and Miller, you know, we, we both mentioned it before. They definitely have had some mistakes and those are glaring, but I think both of them have improved a lot. And some of it I think is systems-based um, last year. One of Miller's biggest flaws was allowing entries against, you know, he really wasn't denying entries. And a lot of those entries against were turning into scoring chances against, and it was that net front area. Um, it wasn't just at the end of the season when everything, you know, kind of fell apart. It was all year he was consistently allowing those quality chances against. So that's an area he's cleaned up, and it does help that their systems aren't saying give up the blue line, back up, and then trying to stop the shot. It's work on your gap control sooner, and I think that's helping his case too. So there's definitely some positives. Um, the fourth line, you know, player like Dryden Hunt, he doesn't have the best shooting talent, but he works his ass off every shift, and he looks good out there. And, you know, the last couple of games we see the fourth line actually creating some, some you know, chances off the forecheck and things like that. So there's definitely some positives there, but you need your top players to be your top players, you know, and that's the difference. That's why they won in Seattle. Their top players turned it on at the right time. 
and you know, an elite player like Artemi Panarin makes the pass that he does to Adam Fox and buys him all that time, and the entire game's changed. So they have enough to get them by, but there's still a lot of room for improvement. You look at it. Igor is playing out of his mind. Adam Fox has been awesome. There's a few other bright spots. You mentioned Kreider. You mentioned, you know, some bottom six type guys and some of the d- defensive guys that are getting better. But Zabanajad has not hit his stride yet. Panarin has not hit his stride yet. Some of the better players on this team have not really completely gotten it going yet. And they're still sitting here at 6-2-2. Two, and two. So I think that there is a lot to build on. I think there is a lot to feel good about, even though, especially when you look at the, the stuff we started with, the, the way they're generating offense, there are some concerning trends as well. So maybe we'll check back in another 10 games and, and see where they're at at that point. But Shana, thank you so much. I really, really appreciate the time. You mentioned you got some stories coming. Anything you want to plug or, or mention before you get out of here? Yeah. Um, so for Sportsnet, I'll have something on puck moving defensemen. I believe that's running tomorrow. So you'll see how a player like Adam Fox ranks because he's, you know, very highly ranked among defensemen in moving the puck and especially with shot assists. So just passes that directly lead to shots. And um, I'll have something on Chester Kin coming Friday. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Shannon, thank you so much. I appreciate the time. Thanks for having me on. And we're back. Thanks again to Shayna for taking the time to come on the show. Really interesting conversation. Hit on a lot of different stuff. I realized afterwards I, I meant to ask her about the PK. Didn't even get to that, but we, we hit on so many other topics that I think we covered a lot there. Fun interview, fun conversation. Hope you guys enjoyed it. And real quick, I can just address the PK. It's been really good recently. We talked about that a little bit in the first segment anyway. So I think that was, of all things, to skip with Shayna. That one was okay. But now... We have a few more topics to address, and that means we're going to dive into your Twitter questions. The first one for this week comes from Maxwell Vogliano, who asks, Vogliano, a little similar to Mercogliano, just change a few, uh, add a few extra letters in the front, we're close there, but, but anyway, Maxwell asks, is there any chance of a Kratzoff return, or is he trade bait just building value in the KHL? So I didn't address this in the opening of the show because I knew that your Twitter questions were going to be about this, and and I think more of them than any other topic were about this. We can say officially now, I had asked about it over the weekend uh, because there were some reports that that came out of Russia, a little premature from what I was told, that the Rangers had agreed to loan Vitaly Kratsov to Traktor, which is the team that he's played a handful of seasons for in Russia in the KHL. I was told over the weekend, like, look, we're having discussions on this. There's definitely a chance that this is going to happen at some time soon, but nothing's official yet. So I shared that information with you guys a couple days ago. Then on Wednesday, the news came out officially from the Rangers that they had come to that agreement. So obviously it was heading down that path and, and the Rangers just wanted to wait till they had, I guess, crossed all their T's and dotted all their I's. So a, a few things I wanted to touch on here with this. Number one, this was always sort of the inevitable next step if the Rangers didn't trade him right away. And to me, this smells and feels a lot like what we saw with Leas Anderson. Many of you will remember a couple years ago, Anderson, who was a top 10 pick for the Rangers in 2017, the year before they took Kratz off with a top 10 pick 2018, he left the Rangers in the fall, early winter of 2019, after he was sent down to Hartford, wasn't happy with the assignment, 
We've heard this before, just like Kratzoff, ends up going back to his home country, refusing the assignment, so to speak, and requesting a trade. With Anderson, the Rangers initially found that they weren't liking what they were hearing from other teams as far as trade offers. It's been the same situation with Kratzoff. Think about this from the perspective of another GM. Why, when you know that you're having issues with this player, the player doesn't want to play for you, he wants out, what would incline you to go to that team and offer them a substantial package? What's happening is teams are only going to try to take advantage of the Rangers right now to see if at this early stage they can pull off a heist and grab a talented player for a discounted rate. The Rangers, I've been told repeatedly, a lot of you I know read the story that I wrote, it feels like almost a month ago now, I think it was while I was in Montreal, about sort of all of the stuff that led to this situation for Kratzoff, how we got to this point. And the Rangers made it very clear, a couple different people that I spoke with, that they felt like they were in no rush to trade him. He's going to be a restricted free agent this summer, but they still will have team control of him. So the ball is in their court to make this move. They are not going to have any terms dictated to them. But just like what we saw with Leas, letting him sit around and do nothing is not going to help his trade value. So after they stewed a little bit and there was some back and forth and things got a little ugly for a short period of time, now they're starting to play nice a little bit more. And it benefits both the player and the organization if he goes to the KHL and plays well. So the Rangers want to give him the opportunity to do that. Because if he goes to Russia, where he already is, but if he plays in Russia and has a decent season, a good season, that would hopefully for them renew some trade interest and get his value back up a little bit. From Kratzoff's perspective, the best thing he could do is play well and show other teams that he has value, show other teams that he could be useful for them, make them believe that he's a guy who they can plug into their lineup and will make them a better team. With Leas, the Rangers waited several months. They let him play in the SHL and had a decent season there. I know he was pretty productive as far as points and goals and all that was concerned. Several months later, during the draft, they were able to get a second-round pick out of the LA Kings. Now, obviously, that's not equal value. You're talking about a top-10 pick and getting a second-round pick in exchange for him. But the Rangers... My understanding is they aren't even getting offered second-round picks right now. So if they can get Kratzoff back to the point where a team is at least willing to give up a second-round pick or something equivalent to that, a young prospect that the Rangers are interested in, that would be a better situation for them, a more likely situation where they would be willing to pull the trigger on a trade than where they stand right now. So that is why he's in the KHL. The other thing that I want to address here is... I heard this from people from the Rangers today. I saw Elliot Friedman tweeted. I've seen other people say it. That now, all of a sudden, there's a chance that after the KHL season is over, he could come back here and play for the Rangers. I'll say this about that. I would never rule anything out. And I do think I can envision a scenario where for the Rangers... Once the KHL season is over, why wouldn't you invite him to come back? You wanted him here in the first place. He didn't want to go to Hartford. He left on his own account. He made a decision that he was going to refuse that assignment, and he went back to Russia. So for the Rangers, you're in the driver's seat right now. You're in no rush to trade him. 
why wouldn't you at the end of the KHL season say, hey, come back? Whether he would accept that invitation or not, I don't know. Now, he might because right now they're in a situation where Kratzoff was being perceived as an entitled player who wasn't doing the right thing by the team and, and didn't want to have to go down to the minors and earn it. That wasn't a good look for him. And for the Rangers, them being perceived at a team that had messed up their relationship with this top 10 pick and basically diminished the value of what had been a very valuable asset, that wasn't a good look for them either. So this public spat where fingers were being pointed back and forth, that wasn't going to do anybody any any good. So I think we have to take all of this with a grain of salt. I feel confident, based on my reporting, that Kratzoff does not want to be here and that the Rangers, in an ideal scenario, would trade him, get something that they like back for him and be done with it. But in order to reach that point, what has happened here after a few weeks of tension and all of that is that they've both kind of slowly walked their way back to the table and they're trying to make something positive out of this situation. Because when both sides were being negative and this story was playing out in the media and it looked like it was an, sort of an ugly situation on the inside. That wasn't going to do either side any good. So I would take all of this with a grain of salt right now. Is it possible that Kratzoff plays for the Rangers ever again? Nothing is impossible. I won't say no. But to me, hands down, the most likely end game for this whole thing is that Kratzoff will be traded. I don't think it will happen anytime soon. I think it's going to require patience, much like we saw with the Leas Anderson situation, which is why I brought that up in the first place. And I think you can see the blueprint. Let him go back to the KHL. Let him play there. Let him hopefully play well. Let him bring that value back up. And hopefully, if the Rangers show some patience in this situation, they can get more for him later than they would get for him if they just shoved him out the door and accepted any kind of trade offer right now. That's where this is heading in my view, and I think there's just a little posturing going on right now with Kratzoff's side saying, hey, listen, you know, maybe after the KHL season, we would come back to New York, and the Rangers saying, hey, after the KHL season, we'd be happy to have him back in New York. Saying anything besides that would be a bad look for either side. So I think we just have a little bit of, of PR stuff going right now, people trying to change the perception, make it look like maybe... The relationship isn't as bad as we were led to believe it was a few weeks ago, as I believe it was a few weeks ago based on on my reporting. So to think that all of a sudden after everything that's happened, and this isn't just everything that's happened in the last month, this is everything that's happened in the last few years, to think that all of a sudden a couple weeks later they've cleared the air and things are great and they're going to be able to move on, and he's going to be here for a decade, I find that hard to believe, quite frankly. So that's where we're at with that, and we'll move on. Our next question comes from John Albanese, who asks, what do the Rangers have to do to get Kako going? He looked good in the preseason and the first few games till he went out. I do agree that the last two games haven't been great for Kako, but... Let's remember, he's only played, I think, five, maybe five games in a period, if you count what he did in Montreal before he got hurt. So 
incredibly small sample size at this point. I do think that he looked good the first couple games before he got hurt. I do think that he looked good when he returned in Columbus. And now I do think that he's hit a little bit of a rough patch since they went out west and played Seattle and Vancouver. You know, we've talked about these young guys all the time. We did Lafreniere a week or two ago. I am hesitant to jump to any conclusions at this point about these guys. I do think that this is a big season for Kako. I do think that over the course of 82 games, you need to see a more productive player than we've seen so far. This is year three for him. So this, to me, is a big year to make the jump and break out and show that you can be a top six player at this level because the Rangers are relying him to be a top six player. He is their number one right wing in a lot of ways right now. So they need him to get better, no doubt. But he's coming off of an injury, and he's only played three games since he came back from the injury. One was good, two not so good. You know, let's readdress this, I would say, in a few more weeks, in a couple more months, and just sort of keep your eye on it over the course of the season. Absolutely, we need him to get better, or from the Rangers' perspective, they need him to get better. And I do think that you can see some things. Gallant talked about it after the Columbus game, how big and strong he looks on pucks. He definitely physically is more developed and ready to compete at this level this season than he was the previous two seasons. You just got to give it a little time to see if that translates. The guy missed a a significant chunk of what has been 10 games. He's only played half of them so far. Let's give him a little more time before you start jumping off the bandwagon. I, I think it's a little too early for that. All right. Final question comes from Richard Derrick. And this is kind of a fun one, so I want to include this at the end. And he asks... What is the best trade in New York Rangers history? He gave me three options. Mark Messier, Adam Fox, Mika Zibanejad. So, for two things on this. The no-brainer choice, I think, has to be Messier. Messier came here, won a cup. Those other guys that you mentioned have not done that. I I don't know for sure. I, I, I probably shouldn't make this blanket statement, but I don't think... Any of the players that the Rangers sent to the Oilers in that 91 deal to get Messier turned into like high-end players. I know the Oilers, after having a tremendous run in the 80s, still haven't won a Stanley Cup since then. So clearly the Rangers, as far as winning, got the better end of that deal. And I think that the players that the Rangers gave up, were, were none of them were star players or anything like that. So Messier obviously has to be the number one guy. He changed the culture here. He brought a cup home to New York after a very long drought, and now there's been another drought since he won the cup for New York. So obviously Messier is the choice as as the best trade in Rangers history, in my opinion. There could be some stuff that dates way back before then, before my time that I'm missing. If there is, tweet at me. Let me know for sure. But the other trades that you mentioned were more recent stuff, and, and I think that that, to me, is an interesting topic because if you look at the recent trades the Rangers have made. We can call them the Jeff Gorton trades. Fox and Zibanejad are obviously the top of that list. I think the Rick Nash trade worked out really well for Gorton. I think there's some other stuff that he did, Ryan Strom, that were definitely good deals for the Rangers. But Fox and Mika, those are the two biggest trades that worked out as major wins for Gorton, in my opinion. And listen... Sabanajad, if you look at that trade, 
the Rangers sent Derek Broussard, who was a good player for them in his own right, but they sent him really what was really the perfect time to the Ottawa Senators, time when he was going to start tailing off and becoming less productive. They get not only Mika back in exchange, but they also get a second-round pick. I don't think the second-round pick turned into anything, but the value was there. They got themselves a number-one center for the long term, and they got themselves a second-round pick for a player who was about to start tailing off a little bit as far as his production. So huge, huge win in that trade, no doubt. But for me, the choice would have to be Fox because not only did he just win a Norris Trophy, not only did he just sign a long-term extension, but this is a guy who stepped into the lineup from day one and was the Rangers' best defenseman and looks like he's going to be that for at least another seven years. So getting a guy who is going to be arguably the best player in his position at the NHL and having him throughout the entirety of his prime, and when all you had to do in exchange was was send the Carolina Hurricanes two second-round picks, hands down to me, Adam Fox is the best trade that Jeff Gordon made. Now, some people might say they don't want to give Gordon a ton of credit for that because we all know that Fox wanted to come here and in some ways maybe forced his hand to get to New York. So... Gordon, I think, just had to give the Hurricanes something that they would say yes to in exchange with the Hurricanes sort of being backed into a corner on that one. But regardless, Fox will go down as one of the greatest trades in Rangers history. Where he ranks on that list is to be determined. Do the Rangers win a couple of he's here? Do they win multiple cups? Do they not win any? That will ultimately determine his legacy as, as it does when we talk about the Messier trade, which is why Messier at this point obviously ranks ahead of Fox. But Fox has a chance to go down higher up on that list, maybe number one on that list, if the Rangers win while he's here. And he knows it. You heard him in that press conference. He said it to us when he won the Norris, and he said it again this week when he signed that contract extension, that he knows individual success is great, but the way that he will carve out a true legacy in New York is by winning, is team success, he said. And so that's what he's putting his focus on now. And if he can accomplish that goal, you're probably looking at the greatest trade in Rangers history. All right, with that, we're going to go. I need some rest, maybe a little more cough medicine, maybe a hot cup of tea. I don't know. I haven't been sick in, in so long. I think wearing masks for a really long time benefited me because it not only helped prevent me from getting COVID, thankfully, knock on wood, but it prevented me from getting any kind of common cold or virus or anything like that. Now, back out and about, still wearing my mask, and obviously I'm vaccinated, but I, I don't know. This cold has been annoying. It's like a sore throat and a runny nose and that kind of thing. But anyway, you guys probably don't want to hear about that. You want to talk about Rangers. We'll do more of that next week when I'm back with another episode after the wedding. But for now, I hope you all enjoy the rest of the week. Enjoy the weekend while I'm gone. I'll be getting some sunshine in Florida, and I will talk to you guys next week.